Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills, Trinity Health of New England. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I hope everyone's having a great evening. We are past our first nor'easter, so hopefully the winds are died down. I know that I had a lot of mums that were all over the place, my umbrella, cushions that my husband should have brought in chasing through the yard with my broken foot. So that was a lot of fun. So I hope everybody got through that nor'easter. So I'm really excited tonight back to uh, back to our program. I'm excited tonight to have with us um, Dr. Beth Sealing. It would not be complete for me to be able to finish out Breast Cancer Awareness Month without our top one of our top surgeons um, for breast cancer and breast surgery, Dr. Beth Sealing. Hi, Doc. Hi. How are you? Well, this is the first time you, I mean, you've done this a ton with me, but this is definitely the first time that you're doing this via the phone. I know. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you perfect. Okay. Okay. I was like, sure. I'm in Middlebury and, you know, we don't have great cell service here, so I'm outside. So the beautiful <laughs> part, I tell all the physicians now dialing in. So we started this during COVID, so mm-hmm. physicians didn't have to come into the studio, but it works so much better because you can actually go home if you can't. I was thinking you were going to still be in the OR or driving. I was finished at 530, so I just, I was like, what do I do? And I was, and Lisa's like, my PA was like, go home, get in the car now. <laughs> In trouble, but I made it. I was so excited. You made it. I'm so glad yes. because then when you're done, you're all comfy. And when you're done, you can chill out with the family. Exactly. It's fabulous. I know it's a good way to do it. So honestly, you know, we have not had a chance, you and I, to chat. And I really no. wanted to save you for the end of the month so we could just cap a lot of what's happened over the last um, last year since we've been together. And also over the past month, we've had a lot of really exciting things happen that you've been part of um, at, yeah. at Trinity in St. Mary's. So first of all, you're amazing, and I can't thank you enough. You're you're an incredible surgeon. You. You've been an incredible mentor to me, um, and an incredible mentor and friend and colleague, as well as to your patients. Um, just an incredible physician to them, as well as a friend. So, you know, in, in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, thank you, thank you, thank you for thank what you, you do. Thank you for thanking me. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> so and your nice. team, and your team, which is amazing, and you know. You have. We do have two other incredible breast surgeons that are part of this this whole system, and you know, having you know, Dr. Ellen Polokoff and Dr. Nicole Sukan as part of your team, that must be awesome to you to have those colleagues to be able, you know, to collaborate with and be able to discuss cases and not feel like you're an island. Exactly. You know, Dr. Polokoff has over 20 years of experience and um, has been doing this longer than I have. And so she has a lot of experience. And, you know, Nicole is breast fellowship trained as I am. And between the three of us, we can solve any problem. So it's just yeah. wonderful to have colleagues to work with and not be alone. And, you know, otherwise, you're, you're again, it's easier these days because we can do things online. But it's just much better to have each other close by. And we go to meetings together. You know, right. Nicole and I went to a dinner meeting last night learning new um, learning about the new PET scanner that identifies, you know, ER positive disease if it's stage four, which helps us to determine how do you treat that disease. I mean, it's amazing what's coming down the pike. And, you know, we went to this dinner together and a couple of the medical oncologists were there. So we do have a nice multidisciplinary team um, here in Waterbury. We meet at Harold Lieber Cancer Center and we meet on Fridays to talk about each and every patient and come up with treatment plans. But we also are together often, you know, in the evenings after work, learning more about what's coming and what we should have. And 
optimizing care for our patients in Waterbury. So it's, it's very nice to have the whole multidisciplinary team together. So you and I talked a bit that, you know, how long we've known each other. So we've definitely figured it out. It's like about 16, 17 years, right? 17 years. 17 yep. years. So if you looked at when you first came to this community, how have we changed? How have we changed in our care of patients? How have we grown? You know, I kind of want to start with that. And then I'm going to fall into the, you know, talking about diagnostics and and some of the different things that have come down the pike. But how have we changed, if you had to sum it up? I think we just, you know, you have three surgeons who know standard of care and who pay attention to how we're progressing in breast cancer care. And so when we know something's better for our patients and we don't yet even have that, say a piece of equipment or some type of modality to help care for them, you know, they're very receptive to listening to us and basically working on paying for things that need to be paid for so that we can have the best care for our patients in Waterbury. And I think, um, you know, it's hard because Waterbury, I think, I love Waterbury. Waterbury is my community, but when you talk to other people outside of Waterbury, like, where's Waterbury? Waterbury, Waterbury. And it's, it upsets me. And I'm like, we're great. I said, we have a great hospital. We have a great team of physicians, not just breast physicians. We have state-of-the-art equipment to take care of our patients. So even though we're a smaller community than some of the other bigger cities, you know, we have everything and more than what those places have. So I'm very proud to work at St. Mary's Hospital. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished in the last 17 years. You know, first we had no genetics in Waterbury, and now we have a full-blown genetics program. Even without a genetic counselor, we utilize our PAs and our physicians to counsel patients so we can give them information about genetic and hereditary cancers. Um, Again, we have pretty much every piece of -of state-of-the-art equipment to take care of a breast cancer patient here in Waterbury because we push for it, and it goes into capital budget, and we get what we need take care of everyone. Um, So I think we have changed a lot because when I arrived, there wasn't anybody who was doing, you know, breast specialty as a fellowship trained physician. And Dr. Polkoff started the breast program, thank God, because there wasn't a breast program at all. And now we have a huge breast program. It's only the three of us, but people will come to see us from all over the state of Connecticut, not just Waterbury. So We've we've progressed tremendously at St. Mary's Hospital with breast care. And uh, like I said, I'm very proud of that. You know, it's so true. I mean, you know, we go back. I go back in the day um, before Dr. Polakoff came and started that piece. And then you came too to enhance it. Prior to that, incredible general surgeons we had in this area. But the focus Absolutely. was not breast. No. You know, the focus was surgery, general surgery. So you could be walking in with a breast mask, but you're sitting next to a patient with a gallbladder, patient with a hernia, and it just... Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem right. No. It doesn't seem right. Right. So when I think back to what it was, I mean, that was reality. Yeah, that's everywhere. It wasn't just Waterbury. I mean, most places did not have a dedicated breast program, and it came very late, unfortunately, but I'm happy that I trained in the time that I did. Just as I was finishing my general surgery residency, you know, this breast cancer fellowship opened up, you know, and it was only about like 16 programs the first year. And the second year when I applied, there was like 30 programs. So it wasn't, it's much larger now, but that was the first time they really started training people in a specialty training program for breast. And so I was one of the first out. You know, so wow. nobody had anybody. So we were we were first to start a, a really strong program, which was started by Dr. Polakoff. And uh, I guess I came in, we enhanced it, then we brought in Nicole. We got so busy. So the three of us have been all three of us have been very busy. You know, absolutely. Now you know you did that training in Pennsylvania, correct? 
Correct, yes. So I what does that entail? But Bryn Mawr. Um, you know, you spend a year dedicated to breast disease only. I had already done my six years of general surgery. Then you do this fellowship where you're doing breast surgery only. But in addition to working with the surgeons, you spend months with the medical oncologist to learn how they're caring for the patients. You spend a month with the pathologist, an entire month you sit up there looking under the microscope and looking at slides. There's many different specialties you learn in your breast cancer fellowship so that when you come out, you're very well-rounded. You can sit in a multidisciplinary conference and understand mm-hmm. everything that's being said, and you can even chime in and give your opinion because you've learned all this. Right. You know, general surgeons simply, you know, we well, not simply, general surgeons, we spend a long time learning how to care for any general surgery problem, so no one can concentrate just on one subject. Right. And unfortunately, breast cancer is very common. One in eight women have breast cancer, and it really did require a dedicated specialty, in my opinion. So I was really ready to do that when I when I heard it was available. Um, surgical oncology fellowships are three years long, you know, much longer, and you learn all cancer care, which again, that's another great specialty. But I decided that I felt that a breast deserved attention and a lot of attention. And people ask me if I'm bored because all I do is breast cancer, but no, I'm not bored. Every patient is different. Every cancer is different. Each and right. every case is challenging and interesting. So right. And you also, I mean, if you think about it, you know, because you're so well-rounded in this, you know, as you're saying, every aspect of it, you're not just going in and doing a surgery and then watching the patient heal and then move on. No, it's it's the reason I like breast disease is because you become part of that patient's care team for the right. future. I, I, I know that some surgeons look at the guidelines and say, okay, I only have to follow this lady for three years and then I can kick her to the curb. But in my opinion, these women are at risk for cancer in the future. And I follow my patients for at least 10 years. Mm. Um, you know, we go from every six months to then once a year, starting at five years. If they've done well for you know, up to five years, they've done well, then you get a once a year. And then at 10 years, I offer for them to go. I say, listen, if you want to give me up, it's, it's fair. I said, you've done really well 10 years out. If you have a problem, I'll know it because of your imaging or because you'll call me if you have a symptom, but the majority of patients don't leave. They don't right. want to leave. So now I'm hitting the dilemma of I have no room to see any patients because <laughs> I have my entire career of patients coming to see me forever. So I have to make some hard decisions and some hard rules in the office now, and it upsets some people, but you know, some people are going to have to see the PA sometimes because I just can't see everybody because we continually diagnose breast cancer every day. So there's just, you know, I'm, I'm hitting that stage of my career where I'm struggling to fit patients in, so I've got to make different rules. Well, just to put a plug out there. Years, but it's done now. Right. But just to put a plug out there, I mean, if I ever got directed to your PA, I'd be very happy. Exactly. We have fabulous PAs as well. You know, Dr. Sukin has a PA, Dr. Polakoff has an APRN, and then I have a PA, and they're fabulous. I mean, they're excellent clinicians. I trust my PA, Lisa McElligott, wholeheartedly, 100%. I would never doubt anything she said or did. I mean, of course, I back her, and I am her, you know, I, I look over her work, and that's my job, but she doesn't make mistakes, you know, and she finds things, and she's a good clinician, so I don't have to even worry about it. But patients, you know, they sometimes don't understand that. They're like, I don't want to see the PA. I don't want to see them, but she's as good as I am doing a clinical exam. She's so amazing. That's another excellent and, thing to have at St. Mary's. And she works really closely with you, as does the other PA and APRN. So they learn from you, you guide them, and you know, they become your better half almost within yes, that office they setting. They're right. your right hand. They're your, basically your right hand. And I teach every single day. And she's been with me for, we were just talking about this in the operating room, she's mm-hmm. been with me for like eight years now in my office. And then I worked with her when she worked at St. Mary's also. So we've been together almost 10 years. So she knows everything I know, and she's like a sponge, and she learns it all. So she's a 
specialist. I mean, Lisa is a specialist. Absolutely. That's how all the, all the extenders are with, Absolutely. who work with us. Because we go to the operating room together. We work all day in the office together. We're always in the same venue. If I'm in the office, she's in the office. If we're in the OR, we're together. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. Now, you know, I want to flip gears just a little bit and, you know, talk about over the last 17 years, how the diagnostics have changed to diagnose breast cancer. And maybe focusing on, you know, we've gone from film to now, of course, digital mammography and now the latest 3D mammography. And how has that changed your world? It's, 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 It's wonderful. First of all, not every state has the law to pay for an ultrasound for a woman with dense breast tissue. We know that dense breast tissue obscures the identification of small cancers because dense tissue is very white on a mammogram and cancers are white on a mammogram. So dense-breasted women weren't really getting great imaging. They really needed an adjunct. So along came Nancy Capello of Are You Dense? And she, the late Nancy Capello, she started working diligently to get these ultrasound laws passed in states. And it's, it's the majority of the states have been passed. But if you don't have an ultrasound, what's left? Well, nothing. Uh, and maybe an MRI. And anybody can order an MRI. So what happened after film to 2D digital imaging, imaging to 3D imaging is the 3D imaging is fabulous. The 3D imaging basically looks at the breast almost like a CAT scan. Slice by slice, we can look through the breast tissue and we're missing less. Right. So the 3D imaging has revolutionized trying to identify cancers in dense breast tissue. I don't think we necessarily need 3D imaging for a fatty breast where you'd see cancer sticking out like a sore thumb, but the majority of women are dense. Right. Um, so this 3D imaging has, has revolutionized trying to identify cancers. So it's amazing. So we don't need as many, I, don't, I think we're, we're, you know, we may not need as many MRIs of the breast. And right. again, the ultrasound as the adjunct is wonderful, which we've had in Connecticut for a long time. So women who are dense get an ultrasound examination as well, which may ob- find those little obscured cancers on the mammogram. Long gone are the, t- the days when we would bring film to mm-hmm. a visit with you, right? And how hard was it for you to really decipher through those multiple films what they were actually Again, seeing? It's, inter- it's it was- based on interpretation. Yeah, patients would walk in with a big, huge envelope full of all these heavy films, and my assistant of, you know, whoever's working for me for the day would have to hang four years worth of films on these film boards in my office, and I'd have to look, and it was hard, and then I would say, maybe something there, and then you have to go in the room and do an ultrasound and exam and see if there's something. Yeah, it was much harder when I first started out, and now the imaging just keeps getting better and better and clearer and better, so it's just, it makes my life so much easier, and it makes... Uh, makes the situation for every patient much better, especially the dense-breasted patients. And we're also seeing less callbacks for patients, right? That's it. Yeah, the callbacks are very anxiety-provoking. When a woman has her mammogram, they might maybe see something. So if they might see something, they think they're seeing something, the radiologist will call the patient back. I have talked to many, many, many women in my life, and that is one of the most anxiety-provoking phone (laughs) calls women have ever received. So yes, decreasing the number of callbacks uh, is also extraordinarily beneficial to these women because, you know, there's less anxiety out there. If they can see it the first time around because it's a 3D image and it's better, there's no callback. If it was a 2D image and it was crappy and dense that so we couldn't see things and they thought we were seeing something, there's callbacks. So, yeah, right. the decreased number of callbacks is another benefit. To I wa- You know, I was definitely that nurse that was calling the patients back. <laughs> yeah, you know. For many years. And I can tell you, you know, just saying to them, listen, there's an area we just need to get a better picture. And sometimes it's tissue, overlapping tissue. We just need to spread it out. It's the folds within this, you know, anything. And, and most times it was, you know. Yeah. 
most times it was, but sometimes it wasn't. And it was it was tough. To, and then women wanted to come in like as soon as they hung up the phone. Yeah, like, I'm coming. I'm coming right now. <laughs> well, you were a good person to tell them. You're very calming and you understand and you understand imaging. And so it does take the right person to talk to these women because sometimes if they don't have somebody like you calling, it's even worse because they're just like, they don't know what's going on. They're like, oh, my God, they're calling me from the radiology. I must have something wrong. And, you know, the majority of callbacks, as you said, are nothing. So they're nothing. It's just a, it's something we need to try to eliminate. Yes, it is. You know, when, and when I get my mammogram, the bad thing for me is I know what I'm looking at. Yes, exactly. So they're like, do I not look, look at the I screen. <laughs> doctor, do you want to see it, doctor? They say, doctor, do you want to see it? I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> I walk over naked and look at my pictures. I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm like, maybe I should just have the radio. Just look at it. But no, I can't. I can't help myself. <laughs> no, we're really bad. Nurses and doctors are the worst. <laughs> I know. We are absolutely together. the worst. So yes. the 3D imaging, though, is not a new technology. Like you said, it's been utilized in CAT scans. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because of the slicing like a CAT scan. But it's also been utilized in other ways that we are able to um, actually access an area of concern utilizing stereotactic breast biopsy. Yeah. And I know that's something that you do quite a bit. You're very incredibly proficient at it. I used to assist a radiologist doing it, and I found it to be one of the most amazing technologies. And I I know it's been out there. I remember Dr. Bushy bringing it to St. Mary's in 1993. 90s. Yep, 1990s it came about. But <laughs> Never prior to forget it. Yes. every woman that had a finding on her mammogram that was not identified either as an ultrasound or exam had to go to radiology in the morning. They had to have imaging taken. They had a wire placed inside their breast while they were awake, while they're squishing the breast. And then they would come up to the OR with a cup over their boob and yes. over the wire so the wire didn't dislodge. And then we'd go to surgery. And I remember as a resident lining people up and like everyone's going to the OR today for breast and we're making incisions, cutting big chunks of tissue out to get the area out and closing up. And I'll tell you, you know, nine out of 10 of those excisional biopsies were benign and we deformed people and gave them scars. And now we have a biopsy system that can do that by just making a tiny little nick in the skin and sending a needle in to test it. And that's this biopsy. Yeah, stereotype biopsy is amazing. So how does it work? (laughs) So women lay on a table um, on their stomach. There's a flat squishy table with one little hole in it and they put the breast in the hole it kind of sounds funny anyway so the breast hangs down like an udder through a hole while the woman <laughs> lays on top of the table we try to get them comfortable so we always we make fun of that in the room once the woman is laying comfortably we then compress the breast in whichever position i thought would be closest to the area of disease where we're closest from the aperture that we're going to be working through so once the breast is squashed we basically take some pictures the pictures come up on a uh, on a a console and then i look at the imaging i find the lesion on a console and i basically do something called targeting we take two different types of pictures so they're different angles and then i target the same lesion in those two different pictures and then the system is able to generate a coordinate it's almost like a gps right so it gives me this coordinate number i then go underneath the table with the breast and there's an entire biopsy system which is also attached to the system I plug in or I don't. The technician plugs in the GPS coordinate of location. The needle on the system does like a rocket. It's like, and it like moves so you can see where it's going to have to go. And then I know the depth, which I set. So once I set the depth and the angled needle shows me the angle it's going into the breast, I know exactly where this biopsy is going to be done. So then I numb the patient. So the only thing they experience is being a little bit squished. And then I basically say, okay, I'm three, a little pinch. And I give them a little lidocaine in the area where I know the needle's going. Then I make that tiny nick in the skin. I send the needle into the breast. 
once the needle's in the breast, we take one more image to make sure, or two images, to make sure the needle's in good position in yeah. relationship to the lesion I want to biopsy. If it's in good contact, which it always is, we take our samples. Then I put a clip at the site of the biopsy, I remove the needle, and we're done. And that's it. So they spend about, I don't know, 10 minutes having a biopsy done as opposed to like half a day in an operating room and visiting with radiologists, have a right. wire place, going to surgery, cutting you, incision, anesthesia, home, feeling like crap. That's all gone. That's all gone now. I mean, they still right. do that in some places that don't have the capability to do stereotactic biopsy, but we're in Waterbury. We've had the capability since the 90s. So it's a wonderful biopsy. I was so impressed with it when I learned about it as a resident right. and I learned from the radiologist and I said, I got to do this. This is like awesome. So that yeah. kind of started my desire to take care of breast was that biopsy. That biopsy, I mean, it blew me away. I remember Dr. Bushy and I actually going um, for a seminar on it. And, you know, I was lucky enough that he included me on his care team back then because I learned so much and I felt so empowered to be able to help women during that procedure and really learned and watching it. And women were going home, going home with a Band-Aid pretty much and Uh, little ice pack. Yeah. Yep. Life back in a stereo strip. That's it. Go to work the next day. I had women just go right to work. I'm like, you could take the rest of the day off. Chill. Oh, women, you know women, a lot of them go back. I mean, we're doing these in the morning, typically, and everyone's going to work. Some people are like, can you give me a note? I'm like, absolutely. You just had a biopsy. You should go home and rest. (laughs) Just the stress of it alone. Now, the samples of tissue are really tiny. Yes, they're small. You don't. You wouldn't notice a defect from somebody doing a stereotactic biopsy. You know, they're long, like little slivers. They're probably about two centimeters long. They're cylindrical, but they're only about two to three millimeters in width, so they're not very big. Right. So for like a graphic of that, maybe like the lead of a pencil. Uh, that thin. Let me think. Um, oh my gosh, what, what, what can I say? Um, like you're, when you're Julie, when you're when you're. Cutting vegetables. Oh my god, it's like a little sliver. It's like um uh I'd say it's more like fettuccine. Okay. Linguini fettuccine. My <laughs> uh, linguini and a, a two centimeter long piece of linguini and okay. rounded. And then <laughs> you actually x ray the sample too, if you're looking yes. right. So most of these biopsies are done for calcifications because we typically don't feel anything with calcifications. They're oftentimes not associated with a density or a mass, so you're not going to find that in the office. So we take them to this room, we put them on the table, we find the calcium, and then when we take the specimen out, before I get them off the table, the specimen goes into a tiny little box in the room called a CubeTech specimen imager, and it takes a picture of the specimen. In about 13 seconds, we get a picture, and it will show me all the blobby calcium in the specimen, and I show the patient, everybody gets very excited, and then we put the clip in, and everybody's happy the calcs are out. Wait a minute, so, so you could do, do that, that in this new little box? You don't have to actually put it in the mammal machine? No, like do? Robin, Oh, I need to come see that. <laughs> we have a tiny little box in the room, which I literally, you know, I hand the specimen to the, to the technician. She walks over to the box. She puts it in the box, and 13 seconds later, we have the picture. We used to have to, yeah, we used to run down the hall. Oh, it's a pain. Take these pictures. The patient would be in compression for oh, a yeah. long person. The patients are not in compression very long anymore. It's much nicer. I need to Again, come in one. I need to come you in do. for a case. Come in. Any Tuesday morning. I'm there. You know where I am. <laughs> now, we mentioned, you know, we mentioning, you know, image, 3D imaging, and we're talking about the diagnostics. And you mentioned microcalcifications. That is something that we look for. Before we move on, I want to address what we are looking for in mammograms. So when, when the radar goes up that we have an area of concern, what are some of the things that a radiologist will look for in the mammography? Um, you know, just, just to kind of give women some idea of what it is that we're looking for and why we're calling certain things the way we're calling them. 
so they look at the breast and, you know, breast tissue itself can look like a mass. I mean, it really can, the dense tissue. So what they're really looking for is something either that has changed from a prior year, such as a density they didn't see before, because any dense any density you see could just be overlapping breast tissue. So they typically look for something that's a change. They look for something more dense than the prior year. They look for something that looks spiculated, which I'm like star-like. It's not round or smooth. It might be spiculated. They're looking for clustered microcalcifications, which may be the earliest signs of a breast cancer starting. You know, breast cancer is basically your own cells growing out of control when they shouldn't be growing. Some gene is not functioning properly that used to control cell growth, and then you get overgrowth of breast cells, and that's basically the definition of cancer. It's start sometimes by just little a little interaction and, and a little calcium might be spit out as a byproduct of these cells developing but you don't even have a mass there yet that can be our earliest sign and this biopsy is the only way to get these out other than surgery which we've stopped doing that for calcification because even if you have a cluster of calcifications in your breast 83 percent of those clusters on biopsy have returned benign while only 17 percent represent atypical really biopsy. yeah so even the ones all the fours of all the birads fours need a biopsy calcifications uh, the, the prior studies that I know in my head, 83% benign. So you just said another thing, BIRADS. So people will see on their mammography report, because of the work of not only Nancy Capello, but also um, there were some pioneers back in the day with the Mammography's Quality Standard Act that recommended that all women were notified of what their mammogram, and it was Nancy called it the happy gram, but the mm-hmm. mammogram report showed, and they talk about BIRADS. Um, what do those numbers mean? So a BIRADS, there's BIRADS zero through six. A BIRAD zero is a callback. It's when a woman is called back to say, hey, we think we might see something. We need to do some more imaging, so we're not going to give you a reading yet. We're going to give you a zero. You're going to have to come back before we give you a number. A one means, okay, this is a perfect mammogram with normal anatomic findings and no abnormalities seen. A two is we see something in the mammogram that's not normal anatomic breast tissue, but we know it's benign. That might be something like um, even a biopsy clip gets a BIRADS, too. If somebody's mm-hmm. done a biopsy before and there's a clip in the breast, that's a two. Mm-hmm. If somebody sees some scattered calcium, which we know is not cancerous, that's a two. It's not a totally perfect mammogram, but it's not bad. The, the things we see are benign. A BIRADS 3 means the radiologist sees something in the breast that he is pretty sure is benign. And there's like a, a very, very, very low risk of cancer with a BIRADS 3. It's like it's in the single digit. The BIRADS 4 means they see something on the image and they do think, the radiologist does think the structure needs to be biopsied and they've recommended a definitive biopsy. A BIRADS 5 means that they see something in the mammogram that they think is definitively cancer. It looks very bad, they don't like it, and they think it's cancer and that prompts people to see a 5 to move quickly and move on and get it going. And a BIRADS 6 means that someone has taken an image of an already diagnosed cancer. Okay. Like, for instance, I'll have a, an older woman, say, who's not getting regular mammograms, come to my office with a lump, and I do a biopsy, and I find out, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make that lady wait. She comes in to see me. She's got a lump. She's scared. I'm going to biopsy it that day. I find out in two days she has cancer, but she's not had an image in a long time. So before we make treatment decisions, I send her for the mammogram. That's a six. They're taking okay. a picture of an already diagnosed mammogram. So zero through six tells us how to handle the cases. Now you so also threes, you know. We did. You, do we still have things. a lot of threes with the with the digital with the three D? Um, I think there's still a lot of threes. That's very radiologist dependent. You know who's yeah. going to read what, and there's certain you know physicians that are 
more apt to give a three, you know, just to keep it real and make sure that they're not missing anything. And there's others that rarely call threes. So it really depends on the day, the radiologist and all that. But a lot of people will come to me with a three because they want yes. to know what I would do. They're right. like, me, I can wait. Do you think I should wait? Do you think I should biopsy this? And quite frankly, the majority of women that come to see me with the three are anxious about it. And, and I can tell just by meeting them, they want to have an answer. So I said, do you just want an answer? Because I'll tell you, breast biopsies are not bad at all. I mean, I think in the day they might have been more painful and I hear stories about horrible biopsies, but I have a very pleasant experience with the patient when we do a biopsy. They feel a little bit of lidocaine. That's it. It is really not a bad process to get a peace of mind answer. So I'll offer it. If someone's anxious, even if I think it's okay, I'll say, listen, if you really need the answer to sleep at night, this is a very simple process and this is what we can do. So I give them options. Sometimes I disagree with the radiologist and I think it needs a biopsy and I'll tell them that and then I do the biopsy. Or sometimes I totally agree with the radiologist. I'm like, listen, this is so benign looking. I just don't think you should be worrying about it. So that's a nice peace of mind we can give people sometimes. Absolutely. About the bi-reds. And I was going to say that to you. What I do have seen in the past in my old world of doing this and what I think I still see um, are patients that... They're getting that BIRADS 3 and they're having that conversation and their doctors are, you know what, I'm going to refer you to the breast surgeon because then you guys can have this conversation and make a, a care plan for yourself that you're all comfortable with. And I have a second set of eyes looking at this. Exactly. It's a perfect, perfect option for the patient. And a lot of times they'll come in to see us and we'll find out that they have like a huge, strong family history of right. breast and ovarian cancer and they should be genetically counseled. So we pick up, you know, anybody who walks through the door might pick up a different a, a different medical need, you know, and we do a lot of genetic counseling, which I think, um, you know, I don't expect every primary doctor to understand that they have a big job. They have to take care of every part of the body. So I am responsible for that. And so when we have people coming through the office, we, we take everyone's family history in detail and we determine which patients need genetic counseling to find out if, if there's a lot of cancer in the family, there's a hereditary syndrome, you know, so we'll, we work very hard in the breast service for that as well. I wanted to go down that road. So um, you, you set it up perfectly. So why don't we talk a bit about breast cancer and the BRCA gene and, and breast genetics? Talk about your involvement in that, how I know that you're one of the bigger pioneers for this, and you've been asked asked to speak nationally in a lot of different arenas. So maybe yeah. tell us a little bit about um, what we can expect and, and a little bit more knowledge to give to our okay. community. So there's, you know, there's two ways to get breast cancer. It, it's all caused by a genetic change, all of it, okay? But you can either have that genetic change because you inherited it, or you acquired it as you lived and got older. That's why the risk for breast cancer goes up as we age, because our genes get more crapped out and decrepit, so they, they, they stop functioning properly. And breast cancer happens because a gene-controlling cell growth in the breast has stopped working, so your own cells start growing out of control. <laughs> so if you have a patient who comes through the door with breast cancer, and they had their mom had breast cancer, and their, their, their sister had breast cancer, and their aunt had ovarian cancer, you that's a red flag. That This family has too much cancer in a particular syndrome called the breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. And so you have to counsel that woman on the fact that you might have a hereditary syndrome running in your family. There might be a genetic mutation causing these things to happen. So you'll draw that woman's blood and we send it out for testing. It used to be that we just tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2. Those are the two most well-known genes that are responsible for hereditary cancers. But we have now expanded panels that look at 77 genes that we now know are responsible for hereditary breast cancer. Different types. You know, some of the genes only elevate risk 
just by a few percentage, but we know about these genes now. So we'll be testing for all of them when we have one of these individuals in the office, and we might find out they have a mutation. Now, if they have a mutation, it's not just breast cancer risk that they have elevated. It's typically several cancers. So perhaps, okay, the BRCA1 genetic mutation, women have an elevated risk for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, and GU malignancies. So then you know what you can do? You can take care of that woman so much better. You can appropriately screen them each year for what they have risk for cancer-wise. And then these women sometimes choose if they have breast cancer, they might choose to get rid of their breast tissue. They might say, my risk is so high, there's no way I would keep these. And I have cancer get rid of them. So some women will choose prophylactic surgery. It would be therapeutic to remove the cancer, but the other breast may not have anything in it, but the woman chooses to remove that prophylactically so that she doesn't develop cancer in the future. And this is a very accepted practice. And all the genes, it's getting very complicated because all the genes have different risks and you have to literally go through the risk wow. like line by line with the patient to say, you know, what, what's important to you? Do, you? do you think that it's is this enough risk for you to choose something like prophylactic surgery? You know, we have certain guidelines that we're supposed to follow as well, but this is revolutionizing care for patients or individualizing cancer care according to their genetic makeup. It's amazing. Wow. It's absolutely incredible. And you said 77. When yes, our panel now is 77 wow. genes. And is that because women that you've tested in the past that didn't test positive for the BRCA1 and BRCA2, you kind of, I think it was called indeterminate. Were those the women that kind of fell into that category where it wasn't really identified and you followed them? And they were yes, followed. there's some women that get a, well, there's one result that's called a variant. And that means variant. it's something weird, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mutation. Right. Those variants are actually followed by the companies that, excuse me, that do the testing. Okay. And they have to reach a certain criteria to deem that variant either bad or pathogenic mm. or good. The majority of the variants come back okay. And the reason we have more variants now is because there's a lot of new genes we're learning about. And genes wow. are very complex. So you might see something you haven't recognized before, um, as opposed to, say, the BRCA gene, which has been around since, like, 1988, I think, was when that gene was identified. They know all the variants at this point. It's rare to have a variant on that gene because people are so... um, so informed about that gene already, and we know everything about it. The newer genes we might not know as much about. We know it can cause, you know, if mutated, it will cause patients to have an elevated risk for cancer, but we don't necessarily know every little nuance of that gene, and that's why there's a little bit more of the variance. But we're, I would have a woman in my office with, like, every single family member had cancer, and yet her, 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 her genetic panel comes back negative when it was only, like, 10 genes. I'm like, there's got to be something going on in the family. So now we're starting to identify, you know, these families that you know something's going on that had negative genetic testing in the past. We're doing these larger panels, and we're finding their mutation. Wow. So it's, it's really, again, very advanced care, wonderful. And we've had genetics since the very beginning because I brought it in in 2005 when I got here, and there really wasn't a lot of genetics out out there except for if you went to a genetic counselor at a big tertiary center. So we brought it in, we um, educated our PAs, and we all were doing counseling and we were getting everybody tested appropriately. And I think that was one of the biggest advances in the Waterbury community. I do too, Doc. I really agree with you because I think when people were given the option to go to another institution, they were put out so far on a wait list to be tested that they would give up and they wouldn't get it done. And I... And what if they had cancer and it might have affected their surgical decision making? Absolutely. There's no testing for four months. How can we do that? 
So Awful. We had to do it ourselves. Yeah, we had to do it ourselves. And just, again, it speaks to what we have here locally and Absolutely. how much yourself and your colleagues have done to improve the care in this community. When I hear people leaving this community, especially particularly for cancer care, I'm absolutely amazed. I don't, we never lose anybody anymore. I, mean, I really, people people feel comfortable yes. because of the, the counseling and the education we give them, and we clearly know what we're doing. And um, I, I've rarely to never lost patients to another facility, and I offer every single patient a second opinion. I'm like, listen, this is cancer. You can go somewhere else and hear from another surgeon. I can give you the names of the great breast surgeons in Connecticut. Um, and people just typically don't leave, you know. No, because they feel safe and comfortable. And you also have a whole group of groupies. I do. I have husband groupies. Yeah. I have husbands that are so upset because we haven't been letting husbands in the office. And they're like, he's in the car. We just go out there and say hi. <laughs> yep. So they miss us. They do miss us. Our oh, it's so funny. Now, you know, we're lovely and wonderful here. They just really are. Yeah, they are. Waterbury. How many, how many people? I've been in the same job for 17 years. I've rarely talked to surgeons that had one job and never left it and then for something better or different. I've, you know, I finished my fellowship. I had a baby and I started my job two weeks later and I've never left. So. And then you had another one. And then I had another baby. You actually had your mini me. After my C-section, I went back to work two days later and, you know, my (laughs) husband would bring her in to breastfeed and then take her home. It was like crazy. (laughs) Well, I didn't have a partner at that time. It was like quiet at that time, you know? Yeah. Now you're a crazy person. I wasn't here yet. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, I gotta go back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we're talking about 3D imaging for um, diagnostics um, in regards to mammography, as well as doing your breast biopsies, but there's a brand new mm-hmm. piece of equipment that you've been on WTNH promoting, which they did a great story on you, as well as the Republican American. And maybe you want to talk about the Mozart system. Yeah, so we uh, have acquired or purchased the Mozart system, which I've wanted for two years. Um, the Mozart system is every time, if I take out a, a, a specimen in the operating room, I want to take a picture of it. I want to see my cancer in the specimen that's been removed from the breast to make sure I think I have the whole thing. So we used to put them in a 2D specimen imaging device. We would just take a picture of it, you know, just a picture of the, like a mammographic image, top to bottom, boom. We'd have to turn it on its side and change its angle to see you know, the different aspects of the specimen because it was just a 2D picture. Well, 3D specimen imaging actually takes the 2D image and then you can go to the little sidebar and you can pick slices. And then what it does is it tells you how big the specimen is. Like I just did a case just, you know, two hours ago. It was a 20 millimeter specimen. And what the 3D imaging does is it starts at the top and it takes one millimeter slices one at a time through it. So you know at exactly what level of that specimen you start seeing your cancer or your calcifications. And then you can look at all the edges as well to see how close it is there. And the imaging is just tip top. It's beautiful imaging. So you go one slice at a time through the whole specimen. So you have an excellent image in your head of exactly how that tumor is situated or the calcifications are situated in the specimen. The studies have shown that it markedly decreases your take-back rate. Now, what does that mean? If I take a cancer out of a patient with a mastectomy, that's it, done. But if I do a lumpectomy, we're expected to have negative margins. And what that means is, for an invasive cancer, it means there's no tumor touching the edge of the specimen, meaning that I ink the edge, and if there's no ink on the tumor, it's a negative margin. But for the non-invasive cancers, which can kind of skip around a little bit, you're expected to have two millimeters of good tissue um, at the edge of the specimen with no cancer there. So we often, not often, 
nationally, it's about a 20 to 30% take back rate for positive, positive margins for mm-hmm. a lumpectomy. Wow. Our take back, I mean, I think I did my numbers recently or a couple of years ago. I was like at 7%. So our take back rate is really, really good. But I'd like to minimize that even more. And the studies are showing like the one big one they did was 11.8% take back rate went down to 6%. It cut it in half. Wow. So all the studies looking at this device. So this is, this is what I was reading. I'm reading all this. I'm reading all this. I'm seeing the device at conferences. I'm like, oh, my God, i got to have this thing. So I came back <laughs> to St. Mary's, and we wrote it up, and I said, I want to have this because it will minimize patients going back to the operating room. It minimizes anxiety. The worst day of my life is walking into a consultation room after a woman's had her cancer surgery, lumpectomy, and I have to tell her we didn't get it all. It's the worst day for her. It's the worst day for me. It's awful. So anything to minimize that and having to take patients back to the operating room is ideal. Plus, it's, you know, cost efficiency. I mean, come on. We don't want to have to have these second operations on patients um, for that reason as well. So Absolutely. this machine is unbelievable. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I know. It's very exciting. And I, I want, you know, I would like to tell the audience, if you want to read the full story that was done in the Republican American, definitely go to our website, trinityhealthofne.org. And in the search bar, just put in 3D imaging or 3d breast and the it will come up and it's saint mary's hospital installs new 3d breast cancer surgery technology so it is on our website and i encourage people to definitely go on or if you want to hear the story i believe you can go on wtnh.com and put in um dr beth ceiling and you will see her story and you can actually see the um actual show that she did on wtnh a couple weeks ago yeah, it was awesome. I had so much fun. Oh, you did, and you were <laughs> not great. That I like not that I like being in front of a camera, but it was it was, it was fun to talk about something. So and funny. proud, you know, we're so. Proud. I was. I am. I'm so proud. I'm and you so know, it's to your you know determination to bring quality here, and you know, I know. Yeah, you say brought to St. Mary's, and then you know, and then you recommend it, and we get it. But you have to do a lot of work behind the scenes because, like yeah. any organization. You've got to say what the benefits are, what it means for, and you're passionate about that. And everybody stops to listen because they know that you're doing it in the best interest of your patients, and it's so important. So, you know, if you didn't have that, we're the only ones that have it. Right. We're the the only in Connecticut, we're the only ones that have this. Oh my God, it's amazing. Now, where did you see this at a conference? I think I was reading about it first. I mean, I I, 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 I talked to um, the representative. It was coming the last time I talked to him. It hadn't even gotten here yet because we didn't have conference during COVID year. So 2019, we didn't have conference. It was the year before they were talking that it was coming. Wow. So I got very excited and I started reading after the conference. And then in 2019, we didn't have conference, but I kept reading about it. And that's when I asked for it. I said, we got to have this. We have to have this thing. It's advanced now. It's, there's multiple studies done on it now. And it shows the multiple benefits of having 3D imaging in the operating room. So, um, yeah, we wrote it up and it went to capital budget and it took about a year and they approved it. And I was super excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you and for patients and the whole program. Me now, too. now, you speak of lumpectomies, you know, and I know patients have a choice. What are you seeing currently in the type of surgery that a woman chooses to have? I know sometimes it's not an option just based on the diagnosis and the pathology, but women that do have an option, what do you see more? Um, we see more lumpectomies, and I and I push more lumpectomies. Um, the you know, if a woman has a mastectomy or has a lumpectomy, the survival rate is exactly the same mm-hmm. as long as you get a negative margin on your lumpectomy. So you've done the same surgery in both cases. Typically, that's why I tell patients, I'm going to do the same surgery and I'm going to get all your cancer out. 
It's whether or not you have breast tissue left or not. That's the difference. Right. And some women cannot have a lumpectomy. As you said, they might have multicentric disease, which means mm-hmm. there's more than one tumor in different quadrants, and that's not acceptable to, to keep a breast in that situation. Some people just have such a locally advanced disease that even if you got medicine first to shrink it, it's just they're not a candidate. But for the majority of women diagnosed, you know, who are getting screening, um, they can they can ha- they can have a lumpectomy. And when the survival is the same as a mastectomy, you know, it has to be a very particular person who chooses that mastectomy when a lumpectomy was offered. And there are women that choose that, and that's their prerogative. After they're educated, they can choose to do what they want to do, which they think is best for them. And some women just have just 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 don't feel they could live with their breast tissue any longer after they've had breast cancer, and it's just an anxiety situation. Some women like don't do well with mammograms. You know, there's different reasons why people choose what they choose. But I do push option two on my discussion sheet, which is lumpectomy followed mm-hmm. by radiation therapy. Um, the woman who does a mastectomy has a local recurrence rate. It's not zero. It's what people think. It's 1%. You can still get a breast cancer when a breast is removed because we can't get every cell out of there. But a lumpectomy with radiation has a 10% recurrence rate. So there's wow. a 9% difference with having a breast, not having a breast. And yes, the lumpectomy patients have to continue with screening and they have to go through radiation. But it's a it's a very it's an attractive and viable option for many women. They're not changed so much after their breast cancer. Right. They have a little scar and right. the radiation can do some changing, but they're very pleased to still have their breast. Now, how does radiation them. change future mammographies for that patient? Are they harder to read? Does the breast get denser? Um, the breast can get a little denser or you can get radiation changes where they do what's called a boost where they give a heavy dose at the cancer site because uh, 91% of all breast cancer occurrences occur at the lumpectomy site. So um, I think it makes it a little bit more difficult, but if you know your patients and you see them post-op day one, and you, do, you know, I, I basically do a baseline image of their lumpectomy cavity with an ultrasound when they come in for their post-op visit, or maybe their three-month follow-up, and then I have that to look at forever. So if somebody thinks there's been a change, you know, I can look back at my first picture after their surgery to say, well, it looks better than it did then. It's contracting down nicely. It's doing what it's supposed to be. I don't see any evidence of cancer. So we just keep track of things really well, and we follow people for a long time. So I think we do a better job by doing that. Um, so I don't think, I think radiation changes the breast in that the majority of women get a little bit of shrinkage right. and it gets a little harder. Like some of my older patients are like, I love my radiated breast. Can you radiate the other side? <laughs> you ask the doctor. I'm like, no, we're not going to radiate you for no reason. But I will offer that woman a little nip and tuck, a little lift right. reduction on that side. And a lot of people choose that. And guess what? That's paid for by insurance because it's part of the breast cancer therapy. It's great. Right symmetry if you've created asymmetry right so we have lots of things we offer people lots of things yeah and that's just the thing i mean being able to have those what what women are women just want it out right but oh god it, it's taken yes. time to grow so they need to have uh, what i would say is you know i, I would want to impress upon is and i uh, you taught me this that women have time to make choices that's right right they have choice and they should be counseled extensively right. on their choices and make their decision based on what suits them the best an option that was viable for what cancer they had i am there to tell them what's viable and what they can do and they're there to help me understand them and what would be best suited to their care because they're going to do better if they if they talked about that plan of care they're going to do better it's shared decision-making. Right. Okay, there, there never was shared decision-making. When I was trained, nobody was sharing decisions. It was all the doctor telling the patient what they needed to do, and there wasn't anything wrong with that. We just really had one option or two options. They would say, this is best for you. Now there are so many different options. You right. have to expose all those to the patient and say, listen, this is all, these are all the things we can do. What do you think is best for you? Um, I'm meeting these people oftentimes for the first time when I'm diagnosing them with cancer. I don't know them as well as I know them after the 10 years they've been with me, and they're like right. family at that point. But in the beginning, I'm just meeting them. So I 
really need the help of their family. I need to understand their personality. I need to help them make these decisions. And that's what I'm, I'm good at. I'm good at facilitating making good decisions with the patient, you know? And I always say to the patient, just because one woman did it one way doesn't mean you need to do it that way. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you just said that. I wouldn't have even thought of that. But, yes, so many women say to me, well, my friend did this, and I don't right. understand why you're not telling me to do this. Because every person is different. Every breast is different. Every cancer is different. Absolutely. And, again, maybe it is the best choice to do what your friend did. But I'm certainly going to tell you all the other eight things you can do besides that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you do, I know you collaborate a lot with plastic surgery to, to assist women in helping to make a choice for themselves. Yes, the plastic surgery team is 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 crucial to doing what we do because I can do small procedures where I rotate tissue into a into a space that might be you know defective after I've removed something. There's little things I do all the time on plastic surgery, but if I'm going to change an entire breast, okay, like today I had a I had a patient who had very very asymmetric breasts when I diagnosed her with a problem. So I said to her, hey, listen, you know, how long have you lived with this asymmetry since I was 13? I said, okay, well, does it bother you? It bothers me horribly. I have to, like, squish this one down. I've got to put things in my bra over here. So after this conversation, I knew, oh, my God, I know I'm an awful this lady. So she did not want a mastectomy and didn't need one. So I said to her, why don't we do this? Why don't we take the cancer out? And at the same time, of course, the cancer was in her smaller breast. I said, so once I take this cancer out and you need radiation, this breast is going to be even smaller than it is now, creating more asymmetry. So why don't we go do your surgery, bring along a plastic surgeon, and they're going to do a big lift and reduction of your other breast mm. and make you symmetric. And that's part of the breast cancer surgery. It's, yeah, it's just that's wonderful. awesome. But that's, again, these, these nuances and these little choices out there, not everybody really offers all of that, but you have to offer women everything that's out there. And not everybody has a plastic surgeon at their hands like we do. Right. You know, if you're out in the Midwest, you got to travel for a plastic surgeon. So mm-hmm. it's, we're very, very fortunate to have good plastic surgery here as well that uh, help us get through these cases and do beautiful cosmetic results for patients. Well, I also want to say, yes, we are. But I also know that because of you and your colleagues, Dr. Polakoff and Dr. Sukan, you're also very, very particular about the team that you put together to support the work you do. And that's a testament. Yes, that is very accurate. The three of us. We're yes, very it is very accurate because I have been, I am so blessed that you guys, you know, you're but all three of you trust me and love when I sit in on certain conversations yes. to investigate options for patients and um, just watching the questions that you ask and how you work to put together the best team for your patients. I, patients don't see that because that's no. all behind the scenes. And I, I just it's amazing to watch, you know, the perfection that you demand for your patients. I do. I do. I can't. I can't. It, it, it's got to be that way. What if we what if we just started, you know, status quo? No, right. we're not. We're not average here. We're not average in Waterbury. We're, we're way well, well above average in what we do. And we can't we can't um, compromise anything. In, Absolutely. In Nothing. Nothing. Johnny's already given me the thing that we've only got five minutes. So I very quickly. Oh I know how you and I could talk on that. I feel like you I know. talk for five minutes to you. <laughs> but I do want to talk about, you know, you did talk about, you know, we alluded to the multidisciplinary approach. And I know there's been a lot of changes there in our breast conferences. And so maybe speak to that a little bit um, over the next couple of minutes. So uh, the, the, there's a multidisciplinary team, um, and that's including 
surgeons, the breast surgeons, the medical oncologists who give the medication for breast cancer, the radiation oncologists who give the radiation treatment to the breast. There's the nurses there. There's physical therapies there. Mary Beth Ola shows up. She's lovely. She's one of our great physical therapists in our community uh, who works for Access Rehab. She's there. The nutritionist is there. Uh, Kurt Sabbath is one of the medical oncologists. His wife, Karen Sabbath, is the nutritionist. Um, Deb Parkinson, the whole group is there. It's a big group of people. We meet at 7 o'clock on Fridays, and we go through each and every case uh, prospectively so that we can make decisions that are best for that patient. You know, and, and, and I can take that back to the patient the following week and say, hey, the multidisciplinary care team met together, and we all as a group feel this is the best option for you. Like, if mm-hmm. you're struggling to make decisions or the patient is, you, know, you can come back to them and tell them what the group thought. Um, we also make better decisions that way. I'm not the expert in radiation oncology. I know it briefly, but I don't know details. So there you have the radiation oncologist telling you, no, 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 you can't do that because I will need this. Or you have the medical oncologist saying, well, why don't we start with medicine first because that would be a better choice because of the Catherine trial tells us that person has a survival advantage. Like, there's all these different things we talk about. And again, in the end, what does it mean? The patient has tremendous, awesome, excellent, outstanding breast care. That's what it means. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And because I it's- love my team. You know, we've all been together for so long. I mean, that I've been at that place for 17 years with the same group of people. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it hasn't changed that much. It's really the same people. We just are getting more advanced with showing the imaging. We can do it online. We can, the pathologists are there. They show imaging. The radiologists are there. They show the imaging. It's amazing. We go in. The surgeon usually presents the case. The radiologist steps up and shows the pictures. The pathologist then shows the biopsy results. Then you kind of chat about it. Then you might show the surgical results. It's amazing. It's just it's the best. And they yeah. do this pretty much in many places. They do this. But we've been doing it like for a very long time before, you know, it's, and, it's been the whole time I've been here. We've been doing this. And what I, you know, what I'd love to share is, though, that the fact that even during COVID, these conferences did not um, go not away. Stopped. They happened stopped. via via a program very much like a Zoom yep. um, where you guys can, I think it's called Acalens, right? Yes, Acalens. I was very stressed out every Friday morning because I had to make sure Acalens was going to work at my house. So <laughs> there's my pajamas typically and I would get online and I would be in the conference together. We all could see each other's faces and we're talking. It was amazing. Um, or I'd go to the office and start there. But um, yes, we did online conferences the entire time we weren't meeting together. So we never stopped doing our conferences. Never. That's awesome. All right. So with just a minute or so left, what would you like to leave our audience with? I'd like to leave the audience with, please go for your screening imaging if you have not gone. Mm-hmm. It is a once a year test where we do a mammogram sometimes with an ultrasound, and you should have it each and every year starting at the age of 40. If you have not gone for this, please contact your doctor and tell them that you're due for your screening imaging. And if you can't get that done, call my office. I'll write you a script. Absolutely. And <laughs> you can brain, brain, brain. And you can find Dr. Beth Sealing on our website, trinityhealthofne.org. Um, type in her name, Beth Sealing, S-I-E-L-I-N-G. She's at 33 Bullet Hill Road in Southbury. And the phone number is 203-267-1563. That's 203-267-1563. Doc, thank you again. You're amazing. Okay. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's so fun, and I like to get the news out, and I'm humbled to be asked again to come on your show. Every year. Thank you. Every year. Every year. I got to do it. I you got to do it. It's, it's a tradition. I know. You're so fun. <gasps> Doc, thank you, and I'll see you soon. You're welcome. Talk to you soon, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us tonight. Um, I do want to encourage women that may not have the option um, for mammography and don't have the means to pay to please go on our website and type in pink out. That's P-I-N. K out. We have funds that have been raised um, for us to be able to provide women with free mammography screening. Um, you can go on our website. It's a foundate done by our St. Mary's Hospital Foundation. You can also email me robin.sills at trinityhealthofne.org. Thank you for joining me tonight and I'll see you in two weeks. Have a great weekend.